0: Hi, guys. Uh, here we are today with Roberto Paolo, um, head of engineering at Peach Payments. Uh, Roberto, good to have you with us. How are you?
1: Awesome. It's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, doing very good. Excited that it's a long weekend. So, uh, winding down from quite a busy week.
0: <laughs> it's definitely been a mad one. And it's ending on a, a bit of a high, right? With um, I don't know if you've seen Elon Musk. Uh, Trying to quiet a, a like, the whole you know, of
1: Twitter yeah
0: <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm brilliant
0: myself. I do you know what I, I actually thought when when he bought um when he bought the first like 9.2 percent my thoughts were, do you know what he'll move it up to like 20 25 30 percent right he'll he'll make sure that essentially he's he's in control of that company and uh, never did I see that he was actually gonna go and try and take it uh private so
1: that's you know, right and there's a really Really compelling offer. I think it was somewhere in the region of forty billion dollars. Um,
0: cash, fifty-four dollars a share, right? I mean, wow. I mean, listen, they might not like him over at Twitter, but they've got a <laughs> scary responsibility. Um,
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh,
0: I think I think whether or not they're going to sell is anyone's guess. I'd like to think, for selfish reasons, that that they that they do actually sell it to him. Um, I think it would be good for the platform. Are You on Twitter?
1: I am. Yes, I am.
0: Yeah, so I, I, I think I think you know Twitter. Sadly, I mean, the thing about it going private is I've always felt Twitter was like the platform for the people. But you know, I'm confident he'll make it a thousand times better. Yes,
1: uh, it's interesting because it hasn't had very m- much innovation over its existence. You know, it does one thing very well, quite simple. But it would be interesting to see what he would change, if anything.
0: He'll change everything. I mean, you know, I mean, I don't know how much you follow it, but it's actually, um, in my well, I have to be careful what I say, but it's not been the most thought-out plan, you know, with uh, the the board at Twitter. And, you know, it's, it's just become a bit of a mess, hasn't it? And yeah. I think someone like Elon Musk will be able to uh get it on the right track i'd like to think but i'm I'm still frustrated because uh i thought he was going to come in and we'd end up all buying into an elon musk company uh be able to hold it for the next 10 years um and all benefit from the upside but such is life so yeah anyway Mm -hmm. we're here to talk about peach payments um you guys are doing some really exciting stuff um over in africa um so you know for those people watching, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, a bit about Peach Payments and what you guys are actually doing?
1: Awesome. Great. Um, so in terms of my background, I started off my career in software engineering. I worked as just a full stack engineer. I, I started just as the boom was, was starting within the software space. So salaries were pretty good, um, but it was enough time for everyone to sort of pick up and learn things. I worked for a compliance company initially. So we worked on a lot of South African law. Um, And then from there, I transitioned into the fintech world where I worked for a company that gave international loans throughout the world. So if you wanted to study abroad, um, say at Oxford or Harvard, we could use predictive models to figure out how much you'd be potentially earning. And that was very interesting. And then give loans based off of that. Uh, Really well-funded company. Um, and then from there, I joined Peach, which was in December 2020, to help them go through their scaling period. So um, went through that at the company prior, where I started off with a team of about eight engineers, and we, we scaled just under 200 in the space of about four years. Um, and at Peach, we've already scaled 600% in the first year alone. So massive growth, very, very rapid growth. Um, what page payments is we're a payment gateway so we connect merchants to banks pretty much or various different payment methods um, and so our big goal is to figure out how companies are spending uh, well how merchants are spending how customers are spending what are they sort of leaning towards in terms of trends so is it is it a credit card in south africa we're we're very similar to what i would call like a first world country in many respects um, but africa is is definitely catching up. So there, are, there are a lot of, you know, what we would consider normal, um, like a bank card or credit records, a credit score. Those things don't exist in many places in Africa. So the big challenge that we have to do is try bridge into those markets and understand how people are spending on the ground, and then be able to like cater for that. Because there's a lot of a lot of benefit in sort of moving to a digital payment. You get a lot of security and things like that where I think that's a major concern, you know, fraud, exploitation. Those are quite big challenges in Africa. And, you know, the digital space provides a lot of security around that. Um, so yeah, we've been in, in business for about 12 years now. Um, so we were like just starting out before the big boom in e-commerce in South Africa. So uh, we've, we've got a lot of the big, large enterprise companies in South Africa that are, are with us. And um, as such, we've had to sort of build for scale. And so we can manage large scale volumes of transactions, um, which sets us apart from a lot of our competition. And, um, and because of that, we've been able to scale really nicely with how uh, lockdown has sort of affected the market at the moment. And so it's been, it's been a very interesting journey and a lot of learning as we've gone over the last two years and how people are sort of moving towards e-commerce. Um, But very exciting. Now, um, I guess some of the big things that are going to be coming up is we've moved into Kenya and Mauritius, but looking at other countries also in Africa. And those places all provide a a plethora of different challenges that we have to like work around um, and figure out how people are spending and what they're thinking about and how they're moving towards things. And um, yeah, it's very interesting challenges that we have to go through there.
0: So, um, yeah, I, I, I think particularly within like East Africa, I mean, you know, you and I were discussing this recently. Um, we're seeing a, well, you, you were saying that there's been huge changes uh, in, in the, should we say, the attitude and the culture towards business and banking. Um, and where, where is it heading? Because obviously, you know, you know, my love for Kenya, you know uh, how much I, I love um, traveling to Africa. What does it look like particularly in that part of, of Africa? Cause I imagine, am I correct in saying that it's still fairly far behind South Africa?
1: I would say in some respects, totally. Um, I would say that if you had to look at like uh, Kenya as a whole, there is their sort of spending patterns look very different to what you would maybe see here in South Africa where, you know, a weekly shop is sort of normal. Um, you know, we, we probably have refrigerators and things to keep our fri- our food good for a while. Where in Kenya, you'll see a huge number of m- more transactions happening. People buy their food almost on a daily, multiple times a day, um, but they're all micro transactions, a lot of small transactions. So around, I would say like 2009, I, I lived in Kenya and around 2008 and when I arrived, the Kenyan shilling was like a, re- a really strong way of how people sort of uh, traded, and so. Um, from the informal markets and in some of the townships, people would be, you know, buying fruit and vegetables or or clothing off the side of the road, and everyone was trading in fiat. And this sort of opened them up. There was this gang called the Mungiki, um, quite a big gang. It sort of formed around 2003 and sort of sort of grew over time. And we're talking kind of the um, sort of 200 000 to 300 thousand members. Sort of level, so really large gang, and they would exploit the taxis. They would exploit, you know, the the small little shops in these informal settlements. And around 2009, this is when um, Impesa as a product sort of like started coming into the market. And what that meant was that you would go to a store, scratch a little voucher, plug that into your phone, just like you would with airtime, except now it's like a currency. Um, and I believe the whole idea started with a little schoolboy in in Mombasa and he shared the idea with his teacher and the two of them sort of went off and made this product.
0: Um, sorry, so what, what, what was it exactly? How did it work?
1: So effectively he was looking at the, at the community and saying, you know, hardly anybody's got um, a bank card or a credit card or anything like that. But everybody has a mobile phone. Everybody communicates with mobile phone. Everyone calls each other. And so he was saying, you know, instead of having a, a whole bank account that you have to pay fees for every month, what if your phone or your SIM card was your bank account? Uh, that was the premise initially. And so you could effectively move money from fiat at like a kiosk and transfer it into this m digital uh, representation of that. And then to send money to anybody, all you have to do is type in a code. You It would use USSD. So very easy you could work on... A huge number of devices, um, and it would transfer the money from your wallet to their wallet. And it was—I just remember it being like almost like this overnight transformation, where it was at the on the Monday everyone was using fiat, like paper money, and by the Friday hardly anybody wanted to touch money. It was all it was all in pesa, um, and so that fundamentally changed the way that people spent in Kenya. So we saw. I think now even we're looking at less than 10% of all transactions in the whole country being paper money, which is well, well less than what we even uh, spend here in South Africa. So they've moved towards this digital medium. And what that's done is given them a huge amount of security around their currency. So this gang, like the Munkiki, were really struggling with like now trying to exploit the taxis because the taxis were taking in PESA and you know you couldn't just like pull that money out of somebody's wallet um,
0: and so a could lot of people put a gun to someone's head say again but they could put a gun to someone's head oh also, yes and, and i'm not joking you know it's one of the security risks that we're currently facing with like decentralized finance how long before people realize that they don't have to rob a bank they can just go to a software engineer's house and uh, you know rob him for his bitcoin
1: That's right. But I mean, here's the thing, right? If you don't give that passcode, they can't like just take your stuff. It's pretty much gone to the ether. Um, And so like, whereas if you had paper money, they could probably just shoot you anyways and then dig through you to find your money. And so it is like an additional layer of like, you know, some people would be stubborn enough and just say, I don't care. You're like, you're not going to get anything from me. Um, And so it, it fundamentally had like this really positive, I think unintended consequence where a lot of people instantly got this like sort of security around their money. And that did like amazing things for the economy because instead of somebody like having to give away 30 or 40% of their money to these gangs, they could hold onto a lot more of their, of their profits and it just made their businesses work a lot better. And they sort of stepped a little bit higher outside of poverty. And so that was like a really big thing. And so another another thing that's now happening is if you had to look at like just cryptocurrency as an example, right? I believe there's more than like one, I think there's more than a billion dollars worth of cryptocurrency currently floating around in the Kenyan market, which is at a phenomenal amount of money. I think it's, well, it's actually maybe well over a billion dollars now. And so um, that equates to almost like 3% of like the total amount uh, worldwide, which is, which is quite large for like a third world country. And so, you know, countries like Kenya are also looking at, you know, where currency is moving towards and like how people are thinking about trading. And in many respects, I think they're leading in, in Africa in the way that they're thinking about fiat and currency. Um, and so here in South Africa, very much, very, very similar. we We have our bank cards and cryptos making really big waves. We're seeing some, Fantastic companies coming into the space thinking about crypto as a as a currency. And we're seeing more people adopt it because they're sort of creating the bridge between the crypto world and the and the physical world with the banks. And so you can send money into an account, purchase whatever crypto you want, trade, and then be able to move your money back out and then put that into your bank account again. And because of that bridge, um, people are more likely to now, you know, sit and trade. Whereas I think. The whole exchange was a little bit of a was a little bit of a daunting process to be able to like, you know, be in the know and how to move your money around, and so that sort of made it a little less acceptable, uh, accessible to the public. And so, um, with things changing, with these com- companies coming in, we're probably going to see a way that the way that uh, people buy things is going to shift. Um, I'm seeing like a lot of positive momentum to these alternative payment methods, which is. Very exciting. We're seeing a lot, a lot more of that, and that's and that's pretty good because, you know, with that movement, we have things like uh, online shopping, and and it can be online in terms of like a Facebook marketplace or a WhatsApp uh, shop, and it doesn't have to be like a website. You can have like a small little shop be able to broadcast to a much larger market, um, and have you, you know your local scene sort of follow your store, and you can publish updates and get all the functionality that you would normally get from like a fully fledged e-commerce shop with very little effort um and so that's that's very, what's very very exciting about here in in africa like there's a big sort of pivot towards that sort of uh, shopping experience
0: it's um it kind of fits in with what we're doing in another way i mean with rayon you know our long-term trajectory is that People come onto our marketplace, and we will be able to provide them with the tools to build their own, um, to build their own company. Right? Um, I think that it's clear now that every company in the world is going to be uh, partly a software company, has to be, and also have some. Was it you who said to me that maybe it wasn't actually? Someone said to me recently, in the future, every company will be in part a fintech company. I, think I wish
1: I had coined that, but that would,
0: yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah. I kind of wish I never admitted someone else said it to me, uh, you know, um, yeah, I, I could have sold on that one, but no, but do you know what I mean? Like when I say that every company is essentially going to have some, um, form of like financial technology integrated into it.
1: Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think, and this is sort of what's also like creating this large demand of technical skills, right? Uh, I think nowadays, I mean, I look at the, the, the schools that I can send my kids into. And from as early as grade two or grade three, they're doing robotics and programming. Um, and that's like a massive pivot from when I went to school, which was typing on a typewriter in grade 11. And then moving into grade, two
0: and grade three?
1: Uh, s- standard. I don't standard, even know. I'm trying to think. Grade, yeah, they, they would be like six or seven years old.
0: All right. All right. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's a good age to start. That's a good start. Doing it, you know. See, I think here in the UK, and I just think we're way behind the times. I think that actually, it's evident in the jobs market. I was seeing now, a lot of a lot of the companies we speak with, and and we we've met with I think over four hundred companies since September. Um, They can't find the talent. They don't have the. They can't find the skills that they need in the jobs market in the UK, and obviously people in the UK just expect a much higher salary. And we're starting to see that actually they are moving those jobs, um, not just out of the UK, but actually also out of Europe to a larger extent, right, as well. Or possibly like Germany, Czech Republic, Poland, um, until obviously fairly recently, um, Ukraine as well. Um, but I think now that, you know, companies are becoming much more adaptable, and, and they are looking, they are looking towards Africa and thinking, actually, you know, there's a largely an untapped market. Um, I mean, what changes are you actually seeing from like big businesses in Africa? And, and how, how is it actually um, affecting people's like day-to-day lives away from just banking?
1: Such a good question. Um, and it's one that I've actually been toying around over this last week because, so last week I went to a conference, uh, one of South Africa's bigger de- developer conferences, and I spoke there. And just getting to speak to all the different sponsors, one thing was very evident, and that was that everybody was receiving funding and everybody was planning on growing and growing 2, 3x their current size. Uh, a lot of these investments were coming in from, from overseas. A lot of them are, you know, it's the... Um, we don't really understand this market. You know, I think if you have to look at like Stripe, they sort of like moved all around Africa. <laughs> they they sort of went to all the different regions and they sort of just knew that Africa was going to be such a hard challenge because, you know, every single country is so different from the next one. Um, the way that they sort of, I mean, we have like these cultural norms or um, let me actually use the, the, the physics term your uh frame of reference right so if i was to ask you right now like how fast are you moving what are you are going to say like well in relation to my chair probably not very fast at all uh, but in relation to like the center of the earth you're moving at about like a thousand five hundred kilometers yeah. an hour right spinning around or in relation to the sun a hundred thousand kilometers an hour you know it's all about where you are in relation to what's happening and i think in some spaces in africa um they're very much like sitting in the chair. They're not really moving, um, but in other places, they're they're moving around the galaxy. They're moving at 600 kilometers a second, you know. And so, um, it's all it's all very dependent on where you are, and that is such a hard challenge to solve. Where if you go to the US or the UK, there's almost like this like a general way of doing things that you can piggyback off of. Like everyone knows how to bank, and so you kind of build your models, your business models around that, and you can just go. And so what we're finding is that anybody getting into a market in Africa, figuring out how that that market operates, and then building some sort of model that can validate that you're getting value off of that that market, that's where investments are landing. That's where people are saying, okay, you're figuring out something that is super hard for us to understand. Um, And so we're going to invest in that. So that's one of the big things that we're seeing. Um, the other big things is a lot of the large tech companies are moving into Africa because, um, you know, salaries here are, are relatively cheaper than paying for like an engineer in the UK. And you're going to find that the skills will kind of be sort of relevant. They sort of be in par. Um, the, if I look at like Kenya, for instance, there's a large Microsoft um, uh, influence there, a large Atlassian influence there. There's a lot of these really large companies a global companies. Is a lot. Yeah,
0: they're a huge player, right?
1: Huge player. Across, yeah, across um,
0: particularly in South Africa.
1: That's right. And it's spurred a number of initiatives across the country to start coding schools and to try to get people up to speed with technology. And and we're finding like a huge, a huge demand for that because you know, if you become even just a junior engineer. You're immediately slotted right into the middle class in that, in, in those countries, and so, um, and you're not dependent on your infrastructure in your company in your country. You're not dependent on pretty much anything. You can you can work over your phone, work remotely, work anywhere in the world, and and be able to like earn a pretty good salary. And that's so liberating because you, many of those people are sort of com- stuck within the confines of whatever that government, whatever that country could provide you in terms of opportunity. And this digital world is now just unlocking that completely.
0: Um, I mean, like, you know, Africa has and still does have have its challenges. Um and I hope, sorry, I hope you don't mind me like referring to Africa as, you know, obviously it's a giant continent with multiple countries. Um, But, um, you know, I mean, the political landscape has always like been like rather like unstable how do you see the landscape changing pretty much over the next like five, seven, eight, over the twenties, right over the 2020s, how do you expect it to change? And is there any concern about the amount of debt that each country, the UK is no different, right? The U S is no different, but, um, with Africa, I've always felt that the countries are much more vulnerable in many aspects. Um, yeah you know, how do you think that's going to play out then over the next like 5 10 years
1: that is a such a difficult question to yeah, answer sorry. but um I'll, yeah i you think don't have to answer by the way no it's from, from my perspective i think um i'll give you an example so like south africa took out a massive massive loan during the covid period initially to put in support systems to sort of Um, supply those that were looking for jobs or had just lost their jobs with some sort of like support structure during that lockdown period when no no one could leave their homes. We saw a huge loss of jobs over that period. Restaurants closing down. Um, And this is not typical. This is not like only isolated incidents in in South Africa, but we did see large amounts of, of, um, of that money just go missing. Like almost to the order of like half of all the money that we were lending, $250 billion just disappears. Um, And what that means is like a huge amount of pressure on those that are paying taxes who are now going to be paying more taxes and more VAT and, you know, interest rates from the banks are going to climb. And it puts like a, a lot more pressure, a blanket pressure over like everybody because... When you increase those things, food goes up, you know, fuel goes up, um, and so it becomes harder even for those that are just making a bite just to get through. And so it is a it is a very tricky thing to sort of navigate, and that's and that's just like that's just one instance. We sort of have to fight against that sort of level of corruption pretty much everywhere, like from the municipality levels where people aren't getting any service. Um, I mean, right now on the news, you'll see that in the uh, eastern side of south africa kzn it's undergoing floods at the moment to the degree where entire hi- highways have been washed away but there's no helicopters flying around helping because there's no fuel the pilots are are gone no one knows where why, they are why
0: why, sorry, and, why, why is that there no there's no fuel or is it just uh it's it's too expensive to
1: to buy? um just misappropriation of funds and so you know they have to like you know go somewhere to try make a plan, but a lot of those like rescue services will be funded by local municipalities and, you know, the fire brigades, fire stations, just not having funding. So the equipment just deteriorates. Um, I mean, police stations, just not having vehicles to get around to get to the crime. And so, uh, I mean, during the lockdown period, for instance, on the side of the road, I found a, a guy, it was, it was quite graphic where this guy was just beating this lady and I jumped out the car and I tried separating them. And it was like, it was quite bad. She was really bruised and bleeding. And I called the police to try to come and and like try to dis- disrupt this. He was completely drunk and it took them three hours to send somebody. So we were waiting on the side of the road from like about midday till about 4 p.m. Waiting for the police. He jumped in his car and just drove away. Um,
0: when they showed up what what they do you you know yeah
1: so we went to the police station we made a statement um and i mean i was just thinking to myself like this is this is super scary and i mean on the phone they were just saying you know it's going to take us a little while the the one or two cars that we have that are on parole are far patrol are far away we don't have a vehicle to actually get to you (laughs) and that for me is like super scary and and that is in a Sort of semi well functioning part of the, of the country where the municipality is pretty good. So in some places, like there's just no service delivery, and so I can imagine those are going to be large barriers. Um, just because, I mean, just thinking about crypto, right? A lot of the banks are very hesitant to like make any very solid um, agreements with these companies, just because they know that there's going to be some sort of legislation that's going to come in at some point where they're going to attempt to try tax and regulate cryptocurrency um which is going to be incredibly hard to do
0: um i spoke to someone else about this the other day and i think the challenge for me with the like cryptocurrencies is that you know the whole point is to have decentralized finance how can you have decentralized finance and have it regulated at the same time like they're they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum to each other so i mean have you guys thought about that at all? I mean, at Peach Payments, is it something you guys, I'm assuming, you discuss it quite often?
1: It's, it's certainly something that we're thinking about. So Web3, the way that, um, you know, technologies are moving, how is currency going to look like that? We see that, like, obviously, in places like Kenya, where crypto is something that people are looking at. So we would definitely like to offer those sort of services in the future. But because we have um, a lot of these agreements with the various banks, um, you know we have to sort of follow flow what, what they're wanting to do. We have to try and maintain our PCI certifications. We have to try and maintain our PSB applica- uh, certifications. So we have to make sure that like we can play along with what the banks are doing and they're sort of waiting on the governments. Um, and so it is. it makes it, a, it makes it like very challenging, like out of our hands almost. We're just sort of sitting and waiting.
0: You know that since um, November last year, so what six months ago, over a hundred governments worldwide have started moving towards the regulation of crypto. And I think that can only be a good thing. But I think that, you know, until there is some form of like regulation, so until there is, sorry, real entrenched regulation for retail clients, I mean, it, it's, it's very unpredictable, right? It's very unpredictable, I mean... Another thing being is that the fact that we need to see more like custodians in the crypto space, Um, I think that that in itself will give a lot more assurances because, and again, this is worldwide. We're seeing tons and tons of scams, um, um, in this area. So, how 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 do you guys go about actually building trust with your customers? Like, what's the what's the relationship like? Then, how do you forge it? Um.
1: Immensely good question. I think, I think our trust has largely come from some credibility. So we've been in the market for some time, right? We're working with some really large enterprise merchants um, that are used by millions of people within our country. So, uh, I mean, just alone them knowing that these big regulated spaces are also using us, that's a really good sign. But the other thing is reliability, you know, being able to constantly meet what these uh uh merchants are looking for we can't have downtime we can't think about you know if if downtime occurs we have to be able to address that super super quickly um, and so that sort of trust i think comes with time and so when we start offering products it's because we've already done our homework on them and that we already know that these are partners worth investing in um, and so you'll find that right now we've been very selective about which partners we want to sort of firstly integrate with in the various countries. So you can see like with Kenya, you can pay with M-Pesa and in South Africa, we're using, you know, the the companies that we believe are going to be well-trusted people that have been in the industry for, you know, half a decade or so that have been, you know, had really good track records. Um, And when it comes to these new innovative methods, we're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to look at like partnering up with companies that can help us do these things that people have some sort of trust with already um and so i think that that's going to be very key you're right because without that trust um all it takes is like one or two bad instances when you know you as a business especially in the financial space if you lead people down the wrong path they're very unlikely to trust you know your service you're, you
0: done. you're done well i'm as, as in, you know, people are very unforgiving and and I, understandably so. I think that more than any other sector, it's, it's tougher for the financial services sector to be able to not only just like build trust, but to also introduce a new product, a new way of thinking and changing people's behavior, right? And all of a sudden, the last five, ten years or so, we were starting to see that with crypto. Um, so... I think it's a watch this space, but what, what, so what is actually next, uh, for, for, for peach payments?
1: Awesome. Um, so sure. We have quite a few things in the pipeline. Some of these things, um, most certainly are <laughs> do not share <laughs> right. like our thinking, because we do have, we do have competition. We're not the only people in the space. Um, we have been, a long ways, I think, in terms of like innovation, we're kind of the first to come out with certain products. Um, the next big things that we're thinking about now is how do we um, provide products to the informal markets? Because we've been very big in the enterprise space, so how do we pivot towards you know people with a lot few a lot fewer uh, customers, but um, are thinking about doing trading on Facebook Marketplace and WhatsApp? We're thinking about how do we address the larger market within Africa with like a few of our partner companies. So uh, when we communicate out with like SMSs or WhatsApp or whatever, we want to use and address those companies that people have trust in. So we very much are thinking about how do we become like, how do we Lego legalize? I'm going to try to think of a better word, um, all the different components of that flow and be able to go into a country and understand that culture and understand what they, what sort of instills trust. We don't want to, bring a South African payment company to Kenya. We want to do our homework enough so that we can build like a, a Kenyan payment company in Kenya. Um, And I think that's the one big thing that we're going to be doing is like a lot of homework around that market and understanding what that spend looks like. And then trying to address that informal market in such a way that we don't place too much burden on them. They don't have to think about having smartphones or using a lot of data to use our services we want to be able to address that market and be able to like you know cater to their needs there. So a lot of homework. We've we've gone to Mauritius and Kenya. We're looking at going to Egypt and a few other countries this year. So it's a lot of different spaces, a lot of different cultures and way of working.
0: Sounds like someone's got a a nice job there, traveling around all the uh, different countries.
1: <laughs> yeah, Mauritius is definitely on yeah, my exactly. checklist. On the white beaches. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have, have, I mean, did, you, have you traveled? I mean, yourself away from work. I mean, have you traveled a lot around Africa?
1: Um, so within Africa, I've been to pretty much all of our neighboring countries, so Mozambique and Zimbabwe, uh, Botswana, and Namibia. Um, outside of that, I've been to Kenya and Tanzania. Um, but I haven't really ventured very much into West Africa. So in East Africa, we we have a a specific language root called ubuntu and it's pretty easy to kind of like when you understand swahili it kind of makes sense to zulu and other ubuntu languages like the 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 words are very similar kind of like in a way french and i guess like english have certain words that are very similar right they have the same root language but as soon as you go into west africa it's a completely different dialect so i i It's uh, quite intimidating to think that I'm going to go to a place where like, I won't understand anything that's going on, but very excited to be able to start thinking about that part of the world because it's one that I haven't actually like explored very much. But outside of that, I've been to India, been to Spain and some places in Europe. So yeah. um, It's very interesting seeing these different markets and seeing how people sort of live and be. Um, And I mean, some things really caught me off guard, just like India's banking system being so well advanced beyond even ours. And, you know, I would consider ours to be well more advanced than what, what you would find in the US where my brother lives, where everything is still check. And it's like, wow, what year are you in? Interesting um,
0: one, isn't that? About the US, yeah. about how like the fintech companies just haven't adopted like the software technology. So you, you think the US would be the, the first to do it?
1: That's right. I think, there's just some industries that have been so entrenched that any sort of movement, it's like steering the Titanic, you know, very slow um, sort of pivoting towards new things where I think we haven't had time to build such a big ship in Africa. So we're a little bit nimble, but in in Kenya, like, I mean, in the US, the sort of like financial sector and the way that banking has been done hasn't changed very much and you know the time that it's been there so
0: it's weird because i'd still say that you when it comes to software the u.s are the best in the world right um but i, th- I think when you know you got to take a hat off to india when you when you look at what they're doing particularly within like cloud-based computing that is a that is a very clever country very, yes i get contacted like regularly um or like young teenagers, like they they want to they want to work in like machine learning, or they want to work in some form of like blockchain technologies, and just some of the cool projects. You know that some of them are like um, working in like internet cafes, right? I, we don't even I don't even think I've seen an internet cafe in London in at least the last like five ten years. And they're just creating these really cool technologies. They're getting in touch saying, hey, look, this is what I've built. You know, this, this is, I'm trying to get a job, I want to. And all of a sudden now we're seeing this tectonic shift whereby we're seeing untold opportunity in India, you know? And all of a sudden, we're seeing huge investment in in uh, cloud infrastructure and edge computing, and you know, it, it's it's definitely one to watch. I, I really, th- I, you know, I will say this that I, I really believe that India will rule the world within the cloud computing space within the next within the next five to ten years. If I not- said
1: it's it's all the emerging markets, right? So I think you're kind of shaped by what you you have around you. So a lot of people are trying to innovate on top of what they have. And so you find that in like the UK and the U S like a lot of these like ideas have been built and have been proven and are seen successful. And so you're kind of trying to work between those spaces where in Africa and in India, those, those sort of industries haven't even exist, haven't even popped up yet. Those ideas, there's no like, um, sort of like comparative company that's doing the similar thing. And so we have like a few steps to get to there, but that's fine because like we're thinking in our, whole different space and we are building off of what we have and so just as you're saying like you you haven't seen like an internet cafe you'll probably find that um because of that like the, the the engineers in India have this like completely different thing that they can think about and innovate on um
0: I think that you know I, I think it comes down to attitude as well and I, I think that you know the UK I mean I, I still believe that the US is the most like creative country in the world but like leaps and bounds for all of their problems, right? And we, you, you, we could discuss their problems for 10 hours and, and not, not even discuss 1% of them, but um, they're definitely the most resilient, definitely the most creative uh, country in the world when it comes to software. I think with the UK, I, I just think the UK is now, you know, we're still the world's fifth largest economy. Um, but when it comes to innovation, I, I think it's quite worrying and when I when I see what's coming out of um of, out of India and like you were saying like the the uh brick uh brick countries um you know I don't see how the UK is going to keep up in the future I don't see like the education system isn't there the attitude isn't there the, you know the me- that mindset that mentality to go out there and just like work really super hard it's just not there and, and I, I think that um on top of that we are just seeing like these uk companies they're right they're, they're looking at towards the us they're looking towards africa they're looking towards asia and thinking actually you know why are we focusing on the uk what are what are we focusing on the uk for you know so it's
1: it's super interesting because another maybe this is a question for you <laughs> i'm gonna no sure, this, go
0: ahead it's been the interview around because yeah.
1: one of the things right. that we're seeing right is that Especially within the tech space, um, over the last ten years, we've seen a bit of like a, I'm gonna call a brain drain, where a lot of the the technical skills have sort of left the country, and a lot of them are going to like I would say the the majority of them are going to UK based companies, where I think this uh, pursuit of finding um, when we talk about inclusion or DEI or um, equality, right. It's really about getting these vastly different ideas in the room. And I think honestly, with with the way that a lot of the UK companies are hiring and diversifying their teams, I'm pretty sure that even though it's not like typically like the UK people, you'll find that through that action, there's going to be a lot more innovation because you have these like, you're almost like inviting conflict and from conflict, you're going to find a lot of innovation.
0: I think. I mean, yeah, but I, I think. Sorry, just to make sure I understand um, your, your question. You're pretty much saying, are oh, we seeing that in the UK?
1: Yes, that's right. Are you seeing like, are you seeing companies moving towards that diversification?
0: Yeah, but they're doing it the wrong way, right? They, right. They, they're doing it to get quotas, and I, you know, uh, I can I can say I've got to be careful. I won't mention any companies' names, but. They will they will phone me up and I'll say hey you know we need to hit this quota for uh, this gender or for this um, background this ethnicity um, can you help us and that's not the right way to do it I, I, I'm you know I, I'm a big believer in equal opportunity definitely male female I like like black white irrelevant. Right, equal opportunity, and equal opportunity starts at the source. It starts in the home. Um, it starts with parents being involved in the child's education um, rather than outsourcing it to a government that doesn't fully understand the needs of the child. Um, I think that it's a very, it's very expensive and a dangerous game that you know a lot of the big corporates can play. They can say, "Hey, let's hit, let's hire based on creating uh, on hitting quotas." um whereas I think that if you're a smaller company if you're a tech startup you're not thinking about what's what is someone's background you're thinking are they the best person are they the right person for this company and then when you grow and as you expand you're creating more jobs you're creating more opportunities and I'd like to think I hope at least that whenever anyone ever is interviewed Right, and I might sound naive here, but I can assure you, whenever anyone is interviewed at Rayon, we don't care about their background. Right, we, we care about actually what can they do for us now. Um, and the other, the other thing I would say that, you know, with diversity equity, inclusion, we have to careful about. We don't want to lose focus away from like hiring good people as it. And I mean, nice people, right? And I think that's really important. We want to work with people that we actually like. Um, and i think that looking at the, the person's personality looking at their character is much more important than anything but you know what i speak to huge huge like, big companies and they've got quotas that they want to fill um, and you know like I, I don't know how they run their companies they're much bigger than round so you know they don't need to take any advice from me and you know we'll help them achieve their goals but i think that if you want true diversity equity and inclusion um it goes back to the education system you know what is the jobs market what is it going to look like in 20 years from now what reforms do we need to make to the education system how do we go about making those reforms where are the parents in this process do we just outsource it to the schools to the teachers or do the parents actually say you know what i want my child to be able to do x y and z i know what's right for my child and I think that's a whole nother, that, that's a whole nother.
1: whole nother you know, discussion. Definitely. we whole nother discussion. That I'd, like,
0: I'd like to have it, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a big believer in equal opportunity. I, I'm not a fan of equal outcome. Equal yeah, outcome. I think, actually I think
1: the, the goal really is, I heard this, I heard this idea, right? That you, you build the team that represents the community that you're building your product for. Um, so you're building a community really to represent that thing that you're working because then you have everybody's ideas and mindsets of the people that you're building your thing for. Um, and that way you're getting the right inputs for that. So um actually heard a really good talk about this and he, and the speaker refer, referred the sort of uh, building of a team to like permaculture within agriculture, right? You're thinking about how do I create this like really resilient sort of um, a group of people that can just bring value. And they sort of work on each other's weak spots that represent this like entity that I'm building towards. So if you want to build towards like crypto, like who do you envision using your crypto? You're using your product. Get those um, groups represented in your company. And that builds a way stronger product in that way. So yes, you have to be very smart about how you diversify, and don't just do it so that you have a, you know, on the, on the outside. Sure.
0: Uh, yeah. So you know what's interesting about this? So, so it's funny what you said. You said, um, what did you just say? Yeah, about um, I was just saying like when, when we were doing the um, recently we were doing a Sequoia Capital application for like funding, and one of the questions was asking about um, you know, who we've built our product for, and One thing I would say is that actually with Rayon, we've really built it for, and I wrote this in the application, we've built it for Yarn and I, my co-founder and I, where we were at least like four years ago. And I think that actually we were building a product that we needed, right? A product where we didn't have all the answers. We we knew we wanted to be able to build an AI company or something within, uh, should we say, modern technologies but we didn't have all the tools to do it so essentially we've now created a community and we've been able to fill that community with like-minded people but at the same time from a a diverse background so you know we share we share the same goals but we've got a different perspective on everything and uh it's definitely made it easier right being able to like bring in the right people and I think even a year ago when we, we actually almost went bankrupt about 14, 14 months ago. And um, it was only when we, when we, we decided to, to give it another go, right. And to rebuild it from scratch. And we, whenever it was something like we have, whenever we have like a major crisis, I always say, right, let's just sit down and let's understand what mistakes, where do we, where do we lose it? Where do we lose control? And one thing that we did, we started, we had, an investor at the time, and like they wanted to add tons of features to our platform. And as you know, for a startup, you don't want to build tons of features. um And we essentially just um decided what we're going to do. We're going to go and speak to a thousand companies, and we're going to learn from them. We're going to actually understand what the problem is in in much more detail. And it made a complete and utter difference when we re- rebuilt the platform. We re- rebuilt it it exactly to the right specification, rather than what we are than what we assumed was the right specification but yeah but look so um peach payments um it's, it's been great to it's, it's been great to discuss everything with you guys um to learn about what it is that you guys are doing and the path that you're on and it will be great to catch up again in about six months or so see what you've made so yeah yes thank you very, very, very much for your time
1: no thank you it's been yeah it's been really great just to um you know, poke at the ideas. I think a lot of this has been sitting in my head for a while and being able to talk about these things is great. So thank you very much for the opportunity and having this sort of platform. I think it's great.
0: Well, it's been great having you. Thank you very much.
1: All right, great. Cheers. Sorry, one
0: sec.